Welcome to Ancient Heroes, where we explore the mysteries and myths of the ancient world. I'm your host, Patrick Garvey. You can find the show notes and learn more about ancient history at ancientheroes.net. I am here with Mike Cole. Do you go by Mike or Micah? Oh, Mike, please. Mike. Okay, I'm here with Mike Cole, who is a security and intelligence consultant who has worked for the NYPD and Cyber Threat Intelligence, the U.S. Coast Guard Station in New York, uh, where he was responsible for search and rescue operations, and the Office of Naval Intelligence, among other agencies. Uh, He served three tours of duty in Iraq. Wow. And... He is a prolific writer of both fiction and nonfiction and has appeared on multiple television shows. So, Mike, I have to say I was <laughs> I was going through your biography earlier today and I was just thinking to myself, wow, uh, you're definitely the most interesting person I've had on the podcast. <laughs> I, 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 I will dispute that because you've had Adrian Goldsworthy and Paul Cartledge on this podcast. So I will not yeah. take that title, but uh, I'm glad. I don't I, know. I definitely, I definitely have had a, a long career. And, and like most people my age have bios like that. Like it's uh, it's sort of a, a, a normal career progression. Okay. Well, well, it's, it's quite impressive. And I should say Thanks. that I should say that Mike's upcoming book, which we'll be talking about today, is called The Bronze Lie, Shattering the Myth of Spartan Warrior Supremacy. And that's coming out, I believe, in September of this year. And it looks like you can pre-order it on Amazon. Is that all right? Yep, that's all correct. Great, great. So starting out, I'd, I really would like to know a little bit more about your background. And I know I just kind of gave a really Cliff Notes version yeah, sure. um, that I pulled offline, but can you just tell me a, a little bit more about yourself and and uh, how you got into writing about ancient history? Sure. So um, I my background, like I said, it's pretty standard. I, I, I uh, People in emergency services go lots of different paths. And I'm actually now I wound up in firefighting. I left New York City and I'm up in uh, the Hudson Valley, north of New York City, and I'm now a, a firefighter. In fact, I just graduated academy and got certified for interior attack a wow. couple of days ago. So um, I'm sort of starting my firefighting career awesome. up here. Congratulations. Well, thanks. Yeah, I, I really like it. Unlike warfighting and intelligence, firefighting is not morally fraught, right? Like you're not, you don't ever have to feel bad about what you're doing. You just right. help people, which is lovely. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I always had the background in military and intelligence and policing, um, which of course connected me to warfare. And I was always sort of an avid war gamer um, and uh, come from, you know, my, my father was an historian and my mother was in museums. So I sort of had that background in that. But I kind of took a detour into science fiction and fantasy. And, you know, like science fiction and fantasy overlaps with military history, doesn't it? Like, you know, uh, you know, Game of Thrones is essentially a fantasy uh, riff on the Wars of the Roses. There's so much interest in arms and armor and in um, military tactics. So it's it's sort of not that hard an outgrowth. But what I was doing was wargaming battles at the time. And I was, you know, painting toy soldiers and stuff that wargaming nerds do. And I got into battles between the Roman Legion uh, and the uh, Hellenistic phalanxes, uh, which I'm sure uh, previous guests on your show probably have covered. And when I went to go read about it, I discovered that um, there just wasn't a book. There was no book out there that laid out. Legion versus Phalanx combat, the right, history right. of it. 
Um, and uh, I decided I wanted to write it. I was a science fiction fantasy writer. I had no background in history, no education in it. And of course, my literary agent told me I couldn't do it. <clears throat> um, well, go ahead, you know, tell me what I can't do. Um, <laughs> and uh, so, of course, I, I taught myself Latin. I taught myself Greek. Um, and I uh, went to Greece. Um, I did battlefield surveys um, under the mentorship of my dear friend, Michael Livingston, who uh, has a, a wonderful book that just came out, Never Greater Slaughter which I highly recommend to your listeners. He's one of the world's great military historians and a dear friend. He co-starred on the TV show Contact with me. Okay. Um, and uh, he sort of took me under his wing and he kind of helped me to understand historiography and how to be a historian, how to do an investigation. And one of the things I discovered is that all of, you know, intelligence investigation, law enforcement investigation, all these skills that I had from my emergency services and combat background, you know, they're, it's one-to-one, -one, man. It translates totally into history. That's what history is. It's, it's, it's digging for facts. It's weighing the credibility of sources. It's having a skeptical eye. It's looking at witness accounts and determining what you can believe and what you can't. It's admitting when you don't know something, right? And that led me to Legion versus Phalanx, which is my first um, work of, of nonfiction. And I'm very lucky it did very well. And when Osprey asked me what I wanted to do next, we were in the midst of this to the far right of the political, and that was happening globally, right? Can you go back about five seconds? I You cut off there for a brief moment. Sure. Um, so when Osprey asked me what I wanted to follow up Legion versus Phalanx with, the country was, not just the country, but the world was in the midst of this swing to the right politically yes. that was going all around the world. So people remember the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, Virginia, yeah. But um, at the same time, there was a rally in Poland, which had, I think, 10 times the people. Oh, wow. um, so like, there's been a real surge of right wing populism, nationalism, hard right political movements, not just in the United States, but around the world. Trump is not an isolated phenomenon at all. And at the same time, uh, Sarah Bond, who is a professor at the University of Iowa, had written a article. Uh, this is not Sparta, uh, where she kind of deconstructed this Sparta myth. And it was such a fantastic article. Your, your um, listeners can read it on Eidolon. That's E-I-D-O-L-O-N. They can Google that, that journal and read it. It's online free. And it got me thinking, wow, man, like this Spartan myth, man, these far right wingers, they are constantly bringing this up. Like the identitarian movement uses the Lambda on the Spartan shields, the Oath Keepers who were participated in the attack on the Capitol in January 6th are Spartan worshipers. Like there's just so much Sparta iconography on the, on the political right. And I was like, well, why is that? Like, what is going on there? And, and Professor Bond had pointed it out and I started looking into it. And of course it's there because this myth that the Spartans were the greatest badasses in the history of time. And this myth it ain't just the political right that believes it. Everybody believes it. Yes. You told me when we started this show that your basement was Spartan. That's the right. first thing you said, right? Yes. So it's like part of our vocabulary and it's so ubiquitous and universally accepted that nobody questions it. To be Spartan is to be tough. To be Spartan is to be a few words, to resistant to bribes, true, you know, to put country over self, like these myths that I bought, like they were on sale. And and of course, when I dug back, I realized, well, you know, this really exploded with the movie 300 in 2006. Um, and, I, and I asked myself, well, were the Spartans that tough? Were they real badasses? Um, 
And then I thought, well, we can answer this question, right? We, there, the, the historical literature documents the battles they fought. Did they win them all? Did they run away in any right. way? Did they surrender? Like, has anybody like tracked this stuff? And the answer is no, not in popular history. Nobody has gone through and done a scorecard, a battle record. Let's look at all the fights the Spartans got into and see how many they won and how many they lost. And this became the genesis for the bronze line. I pitched it to Osprey and I was very, very lucky um, that they, they were willing to take it on. And that's sort of what led me to the point I'm at now. Wow. Wow. No, I, I, uh, I have to admit, I recently, you may have seen, I recently did an episode reviewing the movie 300 and I've been reading some about the Spartans and I thought I was, I was pretty hard on the movie. It really came across as kind of pro Spartan propaganda, but I, I thought that in general, it gave sort of a basic, you know, it was basically correct about that particular battle it just was highly biased and so it is it is uh, i'm sorry man uh don't don't uh you know i sir look you are not the only one who would think that right so you should right. in no way feel bad about that like the whole world thinks that yeah. um but that movie is can i curse on your podcast yes absolutely that movie is hot buttered bullshit like such a gross distortion and when you really stand back and look at it it's deeply deeply racist right um yeah. it, it is these you know highly muscled you know beleaguered white men who stand at the gates of europe turning back this brown-skinned horde you know and that's and androgyne so there's almost like kind of sexual um connotations there that are toxic and troubling that, you know, these manly men who are muscular and clearly identifiable as cisgender men, you know, the, the, the Xerxes that's portrayed in the film looks nothing like the real Xerxes. You know, he looks androgen, right? His gender is, is um, you know, not so easy to puzzle out as the Spartans. And that's a problem, uh, clearly designed to be a, something to be, um, you know, uh, it's pejorative in the film and yes. it's deeply, deeply, deeply troubling to me. Yeah, um, absolutely. And, and from a straight historical perspective, and like the 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 idea of Thermopylae, this myth of Thermopylae that so many of these right-wing groups hold up is that it was a suicide mission. These 300 noble Spartans who went out there knowing they would die to do what? I don't know. Uh, show the Persians who's boss or hit their morale. I don't know. When the truth is, it wasn't 300 Spartans. It was 7,000 allied Greeks and 7,000 allied Greeks holding terrain as, as defensible, as incredibly defensible as Thermopylae means they had every expectation of winning. They had every expectation of holding that pass and making that massive Persian army starve themselves because you know armies live off the land in, in 480 BC. And when you're that many men, uh, you know, you're going to starve yourself out if you have to fight too long in one location. And that was the strategic intention. They had no intention of dying and they were out general and they lost. That's the truth of Thermopylae. And they wound up delaying the Persians for three measly days, which did nothing. And then the Persians went on and burned Athens. So like- right. The thing that is so amazing is the Spartans really did have amazing victories, but the one battle for which they're so famous was the most futile defeat in their history. 
it's incredible to me. Well, and I, you know, one thing I, I, I'm glad you're bringing all this up because I just read, gosh, I wish I had it in front of me because I can't remember the name of the author, but I just read a book about Thermopylae. And what I was having trouble understanding was the battle was really portrayed as something that was um, a really pivotal point in that war. And I couldn't quite understand why. I mean, I know that it, it may have had an impact on the morale down the line and people saw that, you know, this so-called sacrifice was made and that kind of thing, but it didn't, I, I'm sort of left not being able to explain why it was so pivotal despite reading the book. And, um, and it sounds like you're, you're also kind of questioning that. Well, and I, and I, I, I have a chapter in the bronze lie, which, which totally lays all this out. Your instincts are exactly correct. Thermopylae had a pivotal impact on morale. It had a pivotally bad impact on the Greek morale. In fact, <laughs> um, Tom Holland, uh, who's a pretty famous scholar, I really recommend his book, Persian Fire, for those of your listeners who are interested in, uh, and also his translation of Herodotus is probably my favorite one. Um, uh, his book, Persian Fire, if you want to learn about the Greco-Persian War, is just second to none. It's a wonderful book. Um, he wrote a review of the film 300, which isn't very well known. And he theorizes in that review that Themistocles, who was uh, a pretty famous Athenian general, actually started this myth of the selfless Spartan sacrifice at Thermopylae to try to save Greek morale and prevent them from surrendering to the Persians because the loss at Thermopylae was so demoralized because they were just steamrolled. Thermopylae was a speed bump. Uh, underneath the wheels of the Persian war machine. And uh, the fact that it is celebrated, you know, for over 2,500 years now as one of the greatest, you know, I, I, there's a, a, this poem, Michel de Montaigne's poem on cannibals, which I think is an 18th century poem, or maybe it's earlier. He describes the defeat at Thermopylae as greater than most victories. Um, and I guess he's right, but only to the extent of its propaganda value. <laughs> Right. So I guess what I, I, I guess I want to jump into a little bit. Let's stick with the Thermopylae uh, example. I mean, why do you think that it did catch on uh, so powerfully uh, in the ancient world and going all the way through today? I mean, um, was it just a matter of uh, the Spartans and others creating propaganda about it? And were they just better at storytelling than than others? I mean, what? how do you kind of make sense of, of the way it's portrayed now versus what, uh, what actually happened? Right. So the, the only honest answer to that, and it's an answer I wish more historians would give, um, is I don't know. Um, I, you know, historians hate to say that um, because if we say it enough, you know, what do we need us for, right? right. But when you look at the source materials available, um, we can't say with certainty. I wrote an article in the New Republic, which is still available for free online. If your uh, listeners want to check it out, it's called The Sparta Fetish is a Cultural Cancer. It, it came out, I think, a year ago, maybe a little longer. Um, but I go through the history of Sparta worship in this article um, from beginning in 480 BC and taking it all the way up to now. Um, there's a lot of reasons. Um, and I think one is, yes, I think the Spartans certainly played on their own image. Um, and played it up. Uh, they certainly, we see them um, in, uh, during the Roman period, there's the Diamastagosis, which is this ceremony of whipping Spartan boys often to death uh, on the altar of Artemis Orthia, 
and is supposed to be part of their the agoge, this you know brutal upbringing. But when you dig into it, uh, you find out that nope, they they really maybe either invented it entirely or at least made it a lot more brutal because it made the tourists happy. And when the tourists came to Sparta during the Roman period, they spent money, um, and it was a way of, of getting tourists uh, to come visit. Um, so the Spartans definitely leaned into their own reputation, but we also, I think part of it too, is this process of othering, um, that the, that everyone does, right? But in the ancient world, the Greek and Roman writers certainly love to do this. They do it with the Persians, they do it with the Gauls. And with Sparta, we have a society that certainly was to some extent xenophobic, with that certainly wanted to keep outsiders from knowing about them. Um, they, we have no writing from them either, right? We have epigraphy, but we don't have literary sources. So every impression we have of the Spartans in those pivotal period comes from Athenians, right? It comes from these sort of breathless observers from the outside who are fanboying it up. And legends have a way of snowballing, right? Um, but most importantly, this, the Sparta myth plays on a really deep-seated human insecurity, right? That we're not tough enough, right? That we're not, we're not working hard enough. We're not, you know, uh, we're not working out enough. We're not eating right. Like you can see, these are all things that I'm sure resonate. When you, if you go into amazon.com and you put in the word Sparta, you know, 90% of the books that are gonna come up in the Spartan way, eat the Spartan way, and it's right. sort of this, and I think that that insecurity is as old as time that, and looking at, well, you know, having this ideal, this icon that you can hold yourself, I'm going to train like a Spartan, I'm going to fight like a Spartan that helps propel people forward. And I think that that's a very, very powerful myth. And uh, it had legs very, very clearly. But to say that I can conclusively tell you why that myth grew with such enormity and is proved so enduring. I mean, the, the source material isn't there to, to give you a conclusive answer, but I think that there are some clues in, in what I just said. Okay. Okay. Interesting. Do you, what do you make of uh, the idea that within the Spartan warrior culture, that there is, that they embraced dying on the battlefield, that that was something that they felt was honorable and, uh, almost, uh, something that they, yeah, that they embrace that. I mean, right. so I, I think it's myth as well. Yeah. It's, yes, it's horseshit. Um, uh, and there, and I'll give you a few examples. Um, but I want to point out something else. I've been in the military my whole life. Um, yeah. and we believe as Americans in 2021, that dying on the battlefield is honorable, right. That running from a fight is bad. Um, I think that, uh, all of us, uh, when we grew up in, in, in middle school, you know, and uh, a bully is pushing you around. You know, what is what is our culture? You and me growing up as, as uh, cisgender, heterosexual white dudes in America, right? right. Um, uh, we were taught that when you get bullied, you stand up for yourself, right? That it is dishonorable to let yourself get pushed around, even if that bully is bigger than you, right? So the point is, is that this idea that that is unique to ancient Sparta is, is it's BS, you know, it, you know, People all around the world have that belief. Um, and just like us in the modern day, we fail to live up to it. The desire to preserve our lives, the desire to avoid being hurt is often more powerful than our will to fight. 
Um, and, I, and there's so many examples of this. Um, and perhaps the best one is um, the Battle of Pylosin's Factoria in 425 BC. Um, this is during the Peloponnesian War. And you have 120 of the Spartiatai. These are the elite Spartan peers, the, the homoioi, the, 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 the highest, the, the Spartan citizens who uh, are the, the, have gone through the upbringing, you know, the, the, the agoge, the, this brutal training, and are the warriors that uh, you would believe you saw in the film 300. Um, they were marooned on the island of Spacteria when the Athenian Navy uh, cut them off and destroyed the Spartan fleet and captured it. Um, they were starving there for over 70 days. Finally, the Athenians assaulted the island. Um, they backed the Spartans up onto Mount Elias, which is the north end of the tip. I was just there in December 2019, got to climb it myself. It's pretty incredible. Um, and uh, this Mycenaean, uh, these are the Mycenaeans were people that the Spartans enslaved. Uh, uh, on the Athenian side, managed to scale what they believe were the sheer cliffs behind the Spartan position. So they were completely surrounded and they surrendered. 120 of the elite warriors, death before dishonor. No, they surrendered. They surrendered because they wanted to live. And when you read Thucydides' account of this battle, there's no like shock and horror on the part of the Spartans. It seems very normal in the way that he describes it. And most importantly, if the Spartans believed in death before dishonor, these men who surrendered, they would be disgraced, right? The Spart Spartan society would reject them, right? No, the Spartans fought like wild dogs to get them back. And when they got them back, there's this um, legend that of Trasante's Tremblers, which is that the Spartan men who are Spartan warriors who you know, either had the temerity to live through a battle that they lost, would be treated as tremblers and, you know, uh, ostracized from society. And, and they weren't. They weren't. They fudged right. it. And when you read between the lines here, you see that the Spartans, they love their people like anybody else loves their people. They wanted to get them back. And you get this sort of very human picture. But there's something I want to add to this, and this is really important. Whenever I, I point these things out on social media, I always get people who come out and go, man, the Spartans suck, you know, and there's such, you know, I, you tell them like it is, Mike, you know, and I'm always <laughs> like, you know, no, no, that's not what I'm here to do, right? When I show the humanity of Spartans, right, like, is that ancient Sparta, they were certainly no better than us, right? So no better than anyone else, but they were also no worse. And the reason I want to do that is that when you engage with a culture's humanity, you can see yourself reflected in them, right? You can identify with them. They're just as fucked up as we are, right? Um, and when you have that experience, it allows you to be inspired by the times they truly are extraordinary, you right. know? Um, like Spartans, like any other human beings, had amazing moments. And those amazing moments are made even more amazing when they're contrasted with human failure. Yeah. So I, I want to ask you just one, maybe one more question kind of about the training and all of that. I mean, there was, as I was reading about the Spartans, um, uh, some of the historians talked about how in Sparta, uh, the male citizens basically were full-time soldiers, whereas in some other places, you know, the soldiers had other careers and then they were just, nope. <laughs> right. okay. So yeah. So horse, 
shit. Nope. Okay. Um, so the, the elite Spartiati, these homoioi, which means peers or similars, this was the elite Spartan citizen franchise. These are the men you're describing, and they were all men. Um, they certainly led lives free of labor, right? Right. Um, but they live lives, lives free of labor that they used politicking and hunting and engaging in sports and managing their estates. Um, and what we, and we certainly have a lot of description of athletics. We have no description of drilling and training for war. It, mm. There's none of that in the sources. And what you start to see, and, and, and I, I believe it's Aristotle who points this out, is that the Spartans were not better than other Greeks uh, as uh, really only as heavy infantry because they trained so hard, but they were better than the other Greeks because they trained at all. You, to understand this, the hoplite levy system, at least in classical Greece, it changes in the Hellenistic period, is that you have kind of uh, the average Greek heavy infantryman is basically like a, a modern reservist. You do your job, mostly a farmer, you pay for your own gear, the only real requirement to serve in a hoplite phalanx is a spear and a shield. But if you're rich, you can buy armor, you know, a helmet and breastplate and greaves and stuff like that. Um, and then, you know, when the horn sounds, you show up and you fight um, and you're basically an amateur. Right. You know, there may be some formation training, but there's really not a lot of evidence for it. But mostly like you do athletic contests and the Greek phalanx, the, this shield wall that the hoplites formed into. It's so simple that you really don't need any training. All you got to do is stand next to this dude, overlap your shield with his, point your spear at that guy, and walk straight. Like, it's not complicated. The Spartans had a degree of, a greater degree of, of uh, discipline and organization than other Greeks. And their aristocratic status that they were freed to do by slave labor, they had a slave cast the helots that did all their labor for them, Right. This allowed them to be more disciplined and organized, but Spartans are often described as professional, the only professional warriors in Greece. And it's just not true. The, the, the idea of a professional in the modern world, that the modern sense of the word, that, that this is literally what you dedicate yourself to full time. It's what you study and it's all you do. It just is not true. That is not how the Spartans were organized. They were certainly more disciplined and organized. They were aristocrats who were freed from labor and that maybe gave them more time to engage in athletics or some degree of training. But I love that description from Aristotle. They were better than the other Greeks, not because they trained hard, but because they trained at all. It was the amateur nature of Greek warfare that allowed them to be considered relatively superior. But this idea that they were super warriors because they were dedicated full-time to war. It just ain't true. It wow. really is. Wow. Yeah. Fascinating. No, I, I love hearing all of this. Uh, it's a little bit, like you said, this is a little bit of a contrarian perspective compared to popular culture. I mean, big time. And even within some of the history and stuff I've been reading, like I, uh, uh, the book I just read, Thermopylae by Paul Cartledge, uh, you know, it, it talks about some of the shortcomings of the Spartans, but it, it more or less kind of buys into the, some of the descriptions of the ancient sources. I know, and, 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 and bet it kills me because you have to understand, Paul Cartledge is a legend. Like, I, like when you study this stuff, like, you know, he's, it's so funny, a lot of people call him the great man. It's really his nickname because he sort of <laughs> set the tone, right? But like, I'm sorry, man, that's not what the sources say, right? So much of the lionization of the Spartans 
you can only reach those conclusions if you ignore Thucydides and Xenophon and Herodotus and like, you know, what yeah. these people are saying, you know, what I have done in this book, it, there's nothing revolutionary here. There's nothing like, I'm not some kind of a genius. In fact, I'm, man, I'm so dumb. If you turn the lights off and walk out of the room, I'll just sit there drooling until somebody rescues me. Um, but like, you I don't know, think that's true. <laughs> this was not, this was not, you know, this is not a revolutionary take. It's just methodical, right? All yeah. I did was sit down with the sources and keep score and like, and, and, and check, uh, check legend against reality. Um, and, it's and really that, uh, easy. Okay. And that's kind of like, that's leading into my question about how, I mean, it sounds like you, you are, uh, you work with and are in regular touch with um, academics and, and kind of some of these great historians who are currently living today. And what has been, um, what has been their impression of, of this particular project and what has been some of the feedback you've gotten and has it, have you seen a lot of support? Have people uh, questioned the direction you're going? I mean, what's been the overall takeaway? So it's, it's, so it's interesting. Um, I've gotten, I mean, I, I have, great blurbs uh, for the book. So clearly major historians have read it and are willing to put their name to it, which is such a relief. Look, yes, I don't care. I don't care how accomplished you are as an historian. Every, if you're, if you're at all worth your salt, when you write a book, you're terrified, right? right. You're terrified. You're going to publish this book and someone's going to point out that you're totally wrong and you're going to be publicly embarrassed. Right? I don't care who you are. You I bet even Paul Cartlidge thinks this when he publishes a book, I'm sure. Um, so getting, getting endorsements from major historians has been really a great, but I have also gotten death threats. Um, when I published that uh, article in the New Republic, and I published another one in the Daily Beast talking about how the far right misuses ancient history, man, I, I couldn't get through all that hate now. Um, people are extremely invested. The mayor of Sparta, Petros Dukas, um, attacked me in the Greek press. Oh my god! You know, and, and because like he thought I was bashing Sparta, and honestly, right. I mean. Like on one hand, I was proud because you know when powerful people are coming after you, you know you go somewhere, right? But right. um, but I was also heartbroken because I love Sparta, you know, and um, and I didn't write this book to bash the Spartans, and I wrote it to see the Spartans. In a way, it's my love letter to them. Like engaging with them as humans is sort of my way of 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 admiring them and having like the mayor of Sparta, a man who I really would hope to visit and be friendly with. Um, especially when I, when I went there, um, and I certainly will be going again. Um, yeah, I mean, it kind of broke my heart, but it also showed me that people are really, really invested in this myth, deeply invested, uh, to the point where they're going to threaten me. And like, look, man, I don't, I don't claim to be some kind of super tough guy, but I've definitely like made a living for many years at making myself as hard to kill as possible. Like I'm the guy you're going to come for, like, you got to be seriously dedicated to this myth. Um, but yeah, I, 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 I got a lot of death threats. Wow. Wow. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, people are deeply entrenched in this, in this story of Sparta as, you know, as we understand in popular culture. Um, and I guess my, my next question would be kind of on the flip side of things, as you did this deep dive into Sparta and went back through all the ancient sources kind of with fresh eyes, uh, and dispelling some of these myths that you're talking about. Did you come away with, uh, you talk about humanizing the Spartans and seeing the Spartans for who they really are. Did you come away um, with any 
positives from their culture? Anything oh my God. felt like should be admired relative? So, okay. so many and so many deeply human stories that were so inspiring. But my favorite one, um, which I, I, I tell everybody who will listen, and yes, I'm that poor guy, like, you know, I'll corner you at a party and like, you know, bombard <laughs> you with, with history stories until you excuse yourself politely. Um, so like everybody has heard of Leonidas, right? This king who fought at Thermopylae. You know, meanwhile, the only thing he ever did was lose a battle, right? Literally, the only thing we know about Leonidas is that he went to Thermopylae, he screwed the whole thing up, and he got his head cut off. And every and by the way, everybody with him killed. Nobody has heard of Brasidas, who is a hero during the Peloponnesian War. Maybe like a few people have heard of him because he's a character in one of the Assassin's Creed video games. Um, but Brasidas, at that battle of Pylos and Factoria, where those parts surrendered, he he did this incredibly brave thing. He ordered his ship, he ordered his triarch, his, the guy who was running his ship, to wreck it on the rock so that he could assault these Athenians on the beach. And like an idiot, he ran down the gangplank, you know, face first. So think about it. You got one guy running down a gangplank off a ship onto a beach where, you know, five or six enemy can spread out at the foot of that gangplank. And he gets about a foot and he eats, he gets a face full of javelins, right? And he falls back into the ship. He's, he's, everybody thinks he's going to die because he's just stuck through with all these missiles. His shield falls off his arm and falls into the sea, which is extremely shameful, right? I'm sure uh, you're probably familiar with the famous uh, uh, Spartan aphorism, come home with your shield or on it, which is from Plutarch. Right. Losing your shield was certainly a, a signal dishonor. So here he is, he's humiliated, he's almost killed, and you would expect him to commit suicide, right? That's the Spartan life. The mythical way I would like to point out, but he doesn't, he doesn't. He survives and he learns. And when we see him, he's next in command of a campaign that goes to the North to try to detach cities away from the Athenian enemy of the Spartans. This is the Peloponnesian War with Sparta versus Athens. Really the Peloponnesian League versus the Delian League, I'm trying to simplify. And you will notice when you read Thucydides for the rest of his campaign that he doesn't fight. He wins over city after city after city by negotiating. Mm. And it is so clear when you read between the lines that he ran down that gangplank at Pylos. He got his ass handed to him and he learned. And he learned that rushing in isn't the way you win. And as a result, he evolved and he became this incredibly famous commander who won all of these amazing victories for Sparta and all of them without fighting. And there's this incredible footnote to his story. He winds up in the Battle of Lynchestis, which is up way in northeast Greece on the border of Bulgaria. And his allies abandon him. And he's stuck there. And he's surrounded and cut off in enemy territory. And you have this mythic Leonidas, who was also cut off at the Battle of Thermopylae and outflanked and surrounded. And what does he do? He digs in and dies and gets all of his people killed. And Brasidas is like, nope, I ain't doing that. I'm saving these men. And he fights this incredible rearguard action and, and, and puts his men in a hollow square so they can face in all directions. And he has his youngest and fittest hoplites. He establishes them as ekromoi, which means runners out, where they rush out to beat off enemy attacks and rush back into the phalanx. And they kind of crab step their way. It's this bloody slog into friendly territory. And they make it. They make it. So the thing I love about Brasidas' story is it begins with a failure, right? He screws up and he, he's humiliated. He almost gets himself killed. 
and then he learns and he becomes a better person. That is Sparta at war. That is the Sparta I want people to see. I love that story. Wow. Wow. Thanks for sharing that. Uh, you know, uh, I, I also tried to look into Leonidas some and figure out who he was and what he was all about. And like you said, there's, there's very little uh, reliable historical information about him, except a little bit about the battle of Thermopylae. And, um, you know, and I, you know, I guess uh, a little bit about how, you know, he wasn't, when he was born, he wasn't originally intended to become King. And, you know, there's right. some other, there is some other biographical information, but I couldn't even get, I was getting mixed uh, information about even how old he was when he went to Thermopylae. Some, Sixties. Uh, he was yeah. in his sixties. Yeah, it's that's... so hysterical. Gerard Butler, at the time that he played Leonidas, was thirty-six. That was right. thirty-six, and he's so buff he could bounce a quarter off his ass. Yeah. And Leonidas is this old man. He was an old man. Yeah, I think there. I think some actors may have been using some performance-enhancing drugs in that <laughs> uh, in that feature. I'm going to go sure. on the record. Yeah. There. So I guess with I, I'm curious uh, now to kind of. Um, move beyond the actual uh, the actual ancient history of this and to talk about how this has evolved into the current day. And, you know, as I was looking into and in, in looking at the film 300 and reactions to the film, I came away with the same impression of like, wow, this is pretty, this is pretty racist. People are going to say this is racist, I'm, you know, in watching it. And I, I don't know if the filmmakers ever reacted to that or if, you know, if that, if that film came out today, I think it would be received much differently. Um, yeah, well, time. I mean, we're, we're, we're more woke now than we were, right, for right. sure. Um, so, like, I do, look, it was considered racist at its time. Um, right. You know, the national rag, um, you know, listed it as, like, the top 25 conservative films or something, which is your good indicator that it is super racist. Um, which publication was that? The National Review. Oh, National Review, right. Okay. So, so the article I wrote was in the New Republic, which is sort of the left-wing version right. of the national i read review. that article <laughs> earlier today right i, I oh, read thanks. part of it yeah yeah oh, thanks. yeah, yeah. I, I make no secret that uh i make no secret that i'm a, certainly a partisan leftist um but uh i also want to give zach snyder and frank miller a little bit of a mulligan look we were not as aware in 1998 and 2006 of uh social justice issues as we are in 2021 it's just a fact um right. it's certainly not an excuse uh but uh, I certainly think 300 could not have been made today. And uh, <laughs> if the comic, if the 1998 comic had been published today, it, it would be a disaster. Like it would not be successful. Um, and Frank Miller also, Frank Miller, Zack Snyder did not, but Frank Miller went off the deep end and became a right-wing lunatic. He did this later mm -hmm. comic book called Holy Terror, which was a sort of thinly veiled anti-Muslim, uh, you know, paranoid rant, which was widely panned for just being terrible, which sucks because you know, his Dark Knight put Batman on the map. Like most of our conceptions of Batman comes from Frank Miller's yeah. uh, vision of him. Um, but like, uh, why the right wing, why the right wing has embraced this story? It's a really, uh, like there's some obvious reasons. And again, we have to admit, we don't know. Uh, we can't say fully, but I'll say this. The story is tailored to this anti-immigrant narrative that the political right really loves. You know, Europe about to be overrun by, you know, West versus East, you know, which is just total horseshit because Persia and Greece were so interlocked with each other culturally. There is no West versus West of what? Like, 
you know, there's so much Hellenistic culture and, and Hellenic culture in, in Persia that this idea that they're separate is just horseshit. Um, but the, the far right loves this narrative of, of, of white European civilization about to be overrun by immigrants from outside that culture. It's a really toxic and, and, and ugly narrative. And the Thermopylae story is really tailor-built to support it, right? It yeah. allows right-wingers, the Oath Keepers, um, you know, the um, Sons of Odin, um, Generation Identitaire, um, these are all right-wing groups that have embraced the Spartan myth, to cast themselves as heroic saviors of white civilization. Um, and so the myth is tailor-built. You know, we are like the Spartans, they can say, at Thermopylae, battling to preserve our, our identity. And the thing that's so awful about it, look, I'm content, you know, it, it's wrongheaded and stupid. And I'm content to let people be wrongheaded and stupid. People have a right to be morons. Um, but when I saw all of those, all of that symbology used at the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville where Heather Hare was killed, I began to be like, no, man, this is more than that. This is actually kind of dangerous. Yeah. Like this this ideology, this misappropriation of the myth is being used to get people to kill people. And that really got me concerned. And like, look, I don't want to oversell my book, right? I don't want to be like, oh my God, I'm changing the world. It's, it's a book. Let's all calm down, right? You know, um, but if I'm striking a blow with this book against that narrative, right? If, if, if I can get anyone to listen to me and think, wow, man, these right wingers are full of shit. Um, then I will have done something good yeah. uh, with it, and that would make me feel really proud. Absolutely, and I I, I hear you talking about the Charlottesville uh, march that happened, and and it also the, some of the same symbols and imagery and and stuff was used on January sixth. Yes, and I you know um, I didn't I was oblivious to that. I mean, frankly. It, <laughs> You know, I was like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to start studying uh, Sparta some and look into Sparta, you know, and oh, a good place to start will be watching 300 and seeing how that measures up to some of these history, history books and et cetera. And then as I started getting into it, I'm like, okay, this, these symbols are being used at, in January 6th, uh, you know, attacking the Capitol and then going back, I mean, there were other right-wing regimes in history in World War II and the Nazis. The Nazis. The Nazis. Yeah. Hitler. Hitler admired the Spartans. He admired this. The Spartans had a myth, and again, this is also almost certainly not true of eugenics, where they would examine babies, and if they were unfit, they would throw them into a chasm. Like, no, 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 they did not. Right. And there's so much proof. You know, any deformed child, King Agesilaus II, had a club foot. He was a Spartan king. Not only was he a Spartan king, but he went through the agoge with a club foot. So like, there's just so many holes in that myth that show that it, 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 it wasn't true. But of course, Hitler loved that because the Nazi regime was all built on this idea of eugenics, of, of purifying the race. So this idea that the weak would be culled very much appealed to them. But it's a great example because it shows how these really dangerous and sick ideologies, you know, are drawn to that, to that mythology. Do you, I mean, how, you know, in, in thinking about all of this, it's one of those things where, uh, you know, it, it, this stuff is being used by uh, these right wing um, people. 
uh, and different right-wing movements. But at the same time, I think there's just, there's also a lot of people that just think Sparta's cool and especially young men who, you know, uh, this resonates with them, whether, you know, and it might be in a positive sense. It might be that, you know, people are going, they're going to war for a good cause or they're a martial artist or they're, you know, and they relate to this kind of, uh, this, um, this sort of hyper masculinity. I mean, do you view this kind of thing, I guess, as inherent, this hyper masculinity as inherently something that's negative or is it something that can be used for good? I mean, I, this is right, a right, right. So, so, so question. No, no, and, and it's a good one. Um, so yeah. look, I am an ardent leftist and social justice advocate, um, but I definitely think that, um, and, and certainly there is toxic masculinity, right? That's a thing. Um, you know, this idea that, um, you know, men don't cry and men have to be sort of, you know, <laughs> monsters at all times. Like, you know, we don't want that. But right. if you but the idea of 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 not just men, but anyone wanting to pursue self-discipline and self-excoriation and like, you know, pushing yourself harder and doing extreme sports and being galvanized to do that. I have no problem with that at all. Also, I'm not here to shit on people who love 300, right? Like, I love that comic when it came out. It's a beautiful comic. Um, the movie is super interesting and well shot. And, it, you know, uh, we gain nothing by screaming at people. I'm an ardent leftist, but one of the things that I can't stand about my own tribe is that, you know, we sort of have this almost Soviet style you know, all or nothing approach to anybody who disagrees with us, right? Like if you are uh, not hewing entirely to progressive orthodoxy, you know, then you must be a monster and we have to, you know, yes. call you all these horrible names, right? That doesn't help anything either, right? So if, if I see someone who likes doing Spartan runs or, you know, um, you know, enjoy 300, like I don't shit on that person or yell at that person, right? That's not how you bring people along. That's not how you change minds. What, the way you do that is you engage with people, right? And you talk to them calmly. Well, you know, so for example, half the guys in my fire department have mole and lobby stickers. Uh, mole and lobby is the Greek term, come and take it. Right. Um, which is, you know, the slogan of the NRA because they're gun guys, right? Yeah. Um, and so like, if I flip a table and go, you're an asshole, you're a toxic male, you know, you, you're a far, you know, a, the, the, I'm going to get kicked out of the fire department and B um, they're going to, uh, they're going to, uh, you know, think I'm an asshole. That's not what you do. What you do is you go, Hey, you know, that slogan, Molenlave, come and take it. You know, that's what happened, right? Like Xerxes did come and take the weapons like that. The dude who, who wrote that, wrote that, not said it. Everyone says he said it because that's what he does in the movie. He cut off his head and took his weapons. Yeah. So like, I get that you, you're a second amendment guy and like you believe very strongly in guns, but like maybe that slogan isn't the slogan you want on the back of your truck. Um, that's a much better way to engage with people. Um, yeah. And this is why like I get really disappointed and upset when on social media, mostly people will be like, you know, they try to compliment me by tearing down people who still are in the thrall of the Sparta myth. And the truth is like, I, you know, I'm, I don't want that fight, man. Like I'm not here for that, you know? You know, I'm here to have a conversation. Um, and I certainly have concerns about dangerous misappropriation by people on the far right. But the reality of this is, is exactly like you said. Most people who are enthralled with Sparta myth, that's just all they've ever known. Their high school football team was the Spartans. And they this is what they learned in history class. And like there's 
that's not a thing to be ashamed of. You know, yeah. that's the thing that that we gently educate people about. Like it's you know, I don't want to scream at anybody. I'm not here yeah. for it. Yeah. Um, well, so I guess you know, one of my last questions here. I don't want to take too much of your time. Uh, one sure. of my last questions is, you know, as the average person listening who's not a historian, who's just uh, interested in ancient history, maybe they pick up a book now and again and read about ancient history, uh, like I did just about Sparta, but now I'm I'm getting a much different perspective. And so now I'm like, okay, you know, I thought, okay, I'm going to read all this information and, and then, you know, I'm going to do some podcasts about it and then I'm going to move on to the next subject. Now I'm like, okay, now I've got to start from scratch on, on Sparta, <laughs> um, but that's great. But I guess what's your advice to the average person who's reading uh, about ancient history to kind of, to make sure they don't get pulled into some of the propaganda or some of the conclusions that might not really be um you know maybe there's just not enough evidence and and they're kind of getting pulled into the the common narratives that we've heard about whether they be the spartans or the romans or the Athenians or whatever i mean how do you what is your advice to them about how to navigate because as you know you know the ancient world there's you know oftentimes we're only using a few sources and you know and we're trying to match that against archaeological evidence and there's just a lot of speculation happening in some cases so right right so so you know unfortunately the answer is you got to do the work um you have to be willing to read widely and 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 unfortunately also this all history is political anyone who says that an historian is writing an apolitical history there it's just nonsense any historian working has a political bent um and if you read widely look at where the historians are you know, um, if you're reading Paul Rahe, if you're reading Victor Davis Hanson, a quick Google search will show you that these dudes are right wingers. Um, and if you read their history, then read someone from the other side of the aisle and see what you think. Um, and because they're going to present, you're right. One of the amazing things about ancient history is we don't have a lot of sources, right? There's a real paucity of it. So you're going to get the same evidence presented to you and you're probably going to get very different spins on it. I, I've given uh, your listeners a few suggestions. Sarah Bond's amazing article in Adelon, for example, is a place to um, to start. Okay. Um, unfortunately, when it comes to military history, I really think my book might be the first true one taking this stand. I do recommend a two-volume series by Philip Matichik, which is on, I think, Pen and Sword, Sparta, the Rise of a Warrior Nation, and Sparta, the Fall of a Warrior Nation, which I think is really even-handed. Um, a really excellent one. There's also a book by Nigel Kennel called Spartans and New History. It's a little academic. Um, it's about 10 years old. It's very short. Um, but man, like he's not interested in myths. He's really laying out the source material and getting after it in a really fresh way. Um, but look, with history, every writer, whether they intend to or not, brings an agenda to the book. They just do. Um, and there's no way around it. And the only way to get at the truth is to read multiple books on the same subject, which I know is asking a lot for a casual student. Uh, but if you want to get at the truth, that's the way you do it. Yeah, absolutely. I could not agree more. My, my approach um, has been to try, you know, as a non-academic myself uh, and someone who's just gotten into all of this in the last few years, has been to try to find credible people um, and to and to read, uh, you know, multiple sources, and then to try to balance that in my mind and figure out which which is most persuasive, which is really backed by the evidence, uh, you know. And people are making arguments, and so 
you weigh these different things in your head. So I, I couldn't agree more. Um, well, Mike, thanks a lot for coming on the show. This is, uh, this is some great material for me to dive into more. I'm really looking forward to reading your book. I really admire people who are willing to put themselves out there to take a little bit of a contrarian perspective and to challenge what the status quo has been. And there can't be anything more timely than d delving into some of this around Sparta as we see it happening in our popular culture. And we see these symbols and phrases being used more regularly, it seems. Um, so uh, thanks a lot. I will include links to uh, your books, as well as some of the other sources that you've mentioned in the show notes. Uh, is there anything else you want to add before we wrap things up? Yeah, just what I, I love what you said. You're not an academic. Neither am I. I don't have a PhD. I don't have any relevant qualifications for this stuff. And I, and I, and I really want to emphasize that. Um, my qualification for writing this book is that I really, 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 really like this stuff. That's it. That's my only qualification. And I want, I hope your listeners will be encouraged by that. Like, you know, academia, I never bash the academy. Like academia is a critical part of, uh, of this field. Um, and I certainly rely on the academy. Um, I'll consume tremendous material coming from them. But my point is, is that anyone who wants to participate in history in a meaningful way, reading it, writing it, um, pursuing it seriously, there are no barriers to that. You don't need a PhD. Um, certainly, if you can get one, get one, man. I mean, that's a, a wonderful road to, to go and something I dream of someday. Uh, but um, this field is, is open to everyone. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I just talked a little bit about that in my last show about um, you know, how to get into all of this. And I think your story is definitely going to be inspiration for others out there. So um, thank you for all the good work you're doing. Thank you for all the time that you've spent serving our country in many different capacities. And uh, I really appreciate you coming on the show and, and uh, hopefully we can talk again sometime in the future. Yeah, I would love that. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks, Mike. Thanks to Derek Feischer for composing the music used in this episode. If you like the show, consider leaving us a review on iTunes or your podcast app. Until next time.